0: So in light of this morning being certainly our celebration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to take a break from our regular book study right now on Sunday mornings to draw our attention to focus in God's Word and talk about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'd like to draw your attention there if I could, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And particularly, I'd like to look at verses 9 and 10 together this morning. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. And as we do, would you stand with him out of respect for God's word as I read this morning's scripture? 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, Paul says, For they themselves. Declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue now to worship by giving our attention to the Word of God. That, Lord, you would speak by your Holy Spirit through what you have spoken and written down here in your word, and that we would each one of us have an ear to hear and a heart to receive what it is that you would say to us, and particularly this day, Lord, in relation to the fact that you have overcome the power of death on our behalf to give to us so many wonderful things in light of that gift and that promised reality. So, Lord, we pray now, prepare us, take away the distractions that may be in our hearts and minds, that we might hear what it is that you would say to us to help us this day, and we ask this expectantly together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the essential doctrines of Christianity is absolutely the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that God, loving us so much, seeing us in our lost and sinful condition, sent his son to enter into this world, and that God himself literally took a second nature, a human nature. He became a man, lived among us sinlessly in a way that we never could accomplish on our behalf, revealing to us what God was like living among us as a man. And then ultimately, of course, suffered and was punished and died upon the cross as we just celebrated Friday evening here together, as Jesus suffered and died for our sins upon the cross and was literally and clinically dead as a man buried in a tomb where he there was dead for three days, but yet rose back to life from the realm of the dead, overcoming the power of death. And so important is the doctrine and reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that God's word declares to us in 1 Corinthians 15 this, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching and your faith is also empty and you are still in your sins. But the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, he has become the first of a great harvest of those who will be raised to life again. Everyone dies because all of us are related to Adam, but the first man. But all who are related to Christ, the other man, will be given new life. See, the reason why the Bible puts so much emphasis upon the resurrection and the New Testament references it continually and here in our text this morning, again, in our verses that I selected for us, it once again surfaces. Verse 10 tells us there of Jesus, that he is the one whom the Father raised from the dead. Paul always seemed to continually come back to this theme when you read the New Testament letters of glorying in this wonderful reality that Jesus conquered death, that he defeated the power of the grave because that is the foundation stone really to our Christian theology. Now, as I say that it's the foundation stone to our Christian theology, the danger often with foundational things is they often tend over time to kind of get overlooked and forgotten about. It seems like that many times we think about a foundation, we build a foundation, but somehow the value of a foundation can often eventually kind of go unremembered. It's not thought about as much. It's something maybe that kind of just isn't esteemed as time goes by. And I can illustrate that in a practical sense. If you build a house from the ground up, the foundation is the first thing that you do. And it's the most important thing that you do because everything else is built upon the foundation. The foundation is absolutely crucial. It's important. It determines whether the rest of the house is going to go up and it even is what holds the rest of the house together. But it's amazing how as the building process then goes on once the foundation is laid, the foundation gets buried, does it not? It gets buried underneath of a whole bunch of other stuff And it kind of sort of gets forgotten about. Think about it. When was the last time someone came over maybe to visit your home, and maybe you decided to give them a tour, or they asked for a tour, and you said to them, great, come on, I am so excited. The first thing I want to show you is the concrete foundation. I mean, come on, you you got to see this thing. I mean, it is the highlight of our home, right? We don't do that. Or when was the last time maybe that someone was at your home and maybe you recently painted a room or did a renovation project or something and and you were wanting to show them this new thing in your home that you're excited about and they said, yeah, 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 but I mean, that's great, but I really wanna see the foundation. I've never seen your foundation. Could you take me outside and maybe show me the concrete foundation? No one tends to do that, but yet sadly, that important foundation doesn't often get esteemed or appreciated or often thought about, maybe, as often as it really should. Well, Jesus' resurrection is the foundation stone to our faith. It really is absolutely foundational. It's a fact that every true Christian, we, we believe it, we assent to it mentally. However, we want to be careful that our great familiarity with this reality of the resurrection doesn't become something that over time as a christian that jesus is having raised from the dead we kind of start to forget about or maybe not esteem or recognize what it offers to us because it offers to us a tremendous amount of benefits It's a fundamental doctrine to our Christianity, and it's the foundation to offer us so many wonderful things. And in this morning's text, as we look at these verses together, I want to draw your attention particularly to three things that to me are very evident in this text that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ offers to us. Three very evident things, among many other things as well, but three evident things that Jesus being risen from the dead offers to us. Now, the background, just for a quick reference point, 1 Thessalonians, Paul's writing to a group of brand new believers. Paul went to the area of Thessalonica during a second missionary journey about a year prior to this time, and as he went into that community, it seems that he only spent about a three-week duration with this group of the Thessalonian people, and then he ended up having to leave rather quickly. But within those three weeks, together with his missionary team, they preached the gospel message of Jesus Christ, which the Bible tells us is the power of God unto salvation to any who choose to believe it. In those three weeks, Paul was managed to plant a church which took root and became a stable, healthy, flourishing church. And the move of God's Holy Spirit was so powerful and real, that work took root, and instantly the church began to flourish. And many lives were powerfully transformed. Paul alludes to that even here. People who were once living one way had completely transformed lives because of the power of God. In fact, so transformed were their lives, they were boldly giving testimony about God's power everywhere that they went. If you glance with me back at verse eight, one verse prior to what we just read, Paul's describing that. Look what he says. He says, from you, the word of the Lord has now sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. He went on verse eight, your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. Now, again, as I said, it's only been a year At this time, roughly since Paul went there, planted the church, preached the gospel, many people got converted. But notice one of the clear earmarks of the salvation that happened there among Thessalonica is the power of God changing their lives became something that caused them to just not be able to resist talking to other people about. You could tell that their faith in Christ, their zeal for the Lord, Paul's describing in verse 8 there, it was like it was infectious. It was contagious. It was spreading around in the regions all around where they were at. They had truly drank from the waters of salvation, and now out of their innermost being, the living waters of the Holy Spirit are just flowing out of their life, and in the region all around them, in their businesses, and their trips, and their travels, and everywhere they're going, the reception of the power of God like a ripple effect now. It just keeps going out all around to where Paul says here in verse eight, from you, he says, look, he says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. The the term there is literally like the blowing of a trumpet. One of the earmarks of God powerfully changing a life typically is a person's struggles to not just talk about that to other people. It's one of the clear earmarks that when the Lord changes your life, it's hard not to just talk about what the Lord did in your life. It's the same way when someone falls in love when they fall in love you can tell when they're really falling in love because that's all they can talk about that person or the experience that they had and the same is true with the lord and here paul's describing he says from you your faith he says has gone out the idea it's it was they were letting it be known everywhere they went they were just joyfully and naturally talking about jesus telling people about the power of god who had changed their lives, saved them from dead, idolatrous, religious worship, and sinful, carnal, evil ways of living that were self-destructive, and now the power of God changed them. And they had been set free, and they were living in a totally different way as the result of encountering Jesus Christ. And the question might be very simply this, what was that power of God that so powerfully changed them and was empowering them to go about and share with all these other people. Well, Paul tells us very clearly in our verses to remind us this morning, it was the power of the resurrected life of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they had countered Jesus and his risen life, and the risen Lord by his spirit was now dwelling inside of them as new Christians, And Jesus' risen life was living through them and causing them to be empowered. Romans 8 verse 11 says it this way. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See, this is the dynamic of Christianity that many people overlook and many unsaved people don't even grasp, that Christianity is not imitation. You know, we had this very popular thing went through, for those of you who've been a Christian for a while, you know, years ago, the WWJD thing, the what would Jesus do? And I understood the concept, it was a cute, catchy thing, but it really conveyed more the idea of that Christianity is imitation, That we're trying to imitate Jesus and be like Jesus. When the Bible teaches Christianity in its root essence is about impartation. That is the living Christ himself who raised from the dead is imparted. And by his spirit, the risen Lord Jesus dwells inside of us. His life has literally supernaturally been imparted to us. And now Paul says in Romans 8 and in other places in the New Testament that Christianity is about the reality of Christ in you. He's in you, and by his Spirit, he's in us, and he empowers us to live out the Christian experience through living his life through us. And in verses 9 and 10, Paul refers to three ways, at least here, that the risen Lord Jesus was influencing and empowering the Thessalonians, and they are things that are available and offered to you and I as well because Jesus' life has been imparted to all of us who have received him as Savior and Lord. And his risen, resurrected life and power dwells inside of us. And Paul mentions three things, particularly in our verses, that are gifts and benefits of the resurrection. The first one, I think, is very evident in verse 9 he mentions, is that the resurrection of Jesus offers us the power of repentance. The power of repentance, or let me say that a different way. The power to change thank God for that, right? (laughs) Who in their life can tell me there has never been a moment where it's not a weekly occurrence when you're thinking, man, I wish this about my life could change. I wish I could change in this way. I wish it could change acting like this or responding like that or struggling with this or wrestling with this. And, And how often we long, for change in our lives to different degrees as God's people. And here he speaks about this reality of the power of repentance or the power to change is from the resurrection. Look what he says in verse 9 there. He speaks of how they, as the result of the resurrection, had turned, he says, verse 9, you've turned to God from idols. In choosing to turn to God or toward God, They turned their back on or they turned away from where they were turned towards, which were idols. Now, the Greek civilization was filled with gods and goddesses. This was just commonplace among Greek culture. I mean, they were known for a multiplicity in the Greek culture of serving all kinds of idols and false gods, you know, Zeus and Aphrodite and Hermes. I mean, they had tons of different gods and deities and idols and temples So these new believers understand at one point in time in past, they had been worshiping other things. They were serving idols and serving other things. And as human beings, truth be told, we are created by God to worship. God purposely designed us in his image and in his likeness And we have certain attributes that God does in our lives. We've been created in his image with value. And one of the ways God has created us as well is he's created us with a capacity to worship. We are inclined as human beings, all of us are, and designed with the capacity and the longing to worship something. Now, everybody, I don't care what they want to say. They can try and dispute it. Everybody worships something. Every human being has a master passion in their life, the thing that rules their heart, that gets them out of bed in the morning, that drives them. And whether a person wants to admit it or not, or even if maybe they just don't see it or not, everybody serves and worships something. Every human being does. We were created to do that. And so there's always something in our life that's our greatest love, the thing we adore the most, the thing we serve the most, the thing we think about the most, the thing that we pour our greatest energy and dedication into. Everybody worships something. Now, the problem is... We may tend to say, oh, I I don't worship something, but our selfish, sinful tendency pollutes everything in our life, and this is another area where it really gets us off track as people sometimes, is because we all worship something to some degree, but the problem is if we're not worshiping God, anything else is idolatry, the Bible would convey. And so Paul says here, you turn to God from idols, Now, an idol is basically a substitute object of worship. It's giving love and honor that belongs to God as our creator, as the one true holy God. It's just a substitute form of worship. So today, we may say and and look at idolatry and think, I mean, idols, idolatry, I mean, that's a primitive thing. I mean, people don't have little wooden statues and we don't have temples to Zeus you know, here in Northfield and Linwood. I mean, there's, I haven't seen a temple to Aphrodite any. And so we kind of, maybe we hear that word and we think, I mean, that was a primitive thing. We don't bow down and burn incense to things. But the bottom line is we still formulate idols. We just establish idols and idolatry in our hearts within the temple of our own lives. And we are just as prone to the same thing. Whatever things we, in a sense, bow down our will to and we serve with the most of our devotion or all of our energy or the greatest of our attention, idols can come in various forms. A career can become an idol in someone's life. Money can become an idol in someone's life. A car, a home, a hobby that someone is so in love with, it can be, it become like kind of idolatry in someone's life. A person can become a form of idolatry. You know, I've raised three children into adulthood. Many of you are raising these, one of these kids. You could idolize one of those kids. They're so stinking cute, are they not? And you love them so much, and you want to make them happy and bless them and give them the best life possible. And I've learned over the years, even in parenting. As you're parenting, you could almost make your child into an idol where the whole world revolves around your child, and doing what your child wants, and making them happy, and, and you start to kind of step back and evaluate, whoa, like, we, we almost worship and give more dedication and devotion to our child than we do God. And anything, even a good thing, can become an idol, a person, a relationship, romantic relationships. Some people bow down at the altar of alcohol and drugs. And that's where they worship. That's the altar of a substance that they abuse or sex or pornography. And if something or someone occupies the throne, ruling over our desires to that kind of an intense degree, God simply says, look, don't be honest or dishonest with yourself. That's idolatry. It's an idol. Again, an idol is a substitute form of worship where we give love for God to another, instead, or love for God to something else instead. And what did Jesus say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's how we're supposed to live. So when I'm not doing that, or a person's not doing that, then God says, the only other option is you're giving that love and devotion to something other than God, and that becomes idolatry. Now, when the Thessalonians heard the good news of what the Lord Jesus had done and offered, Paul says, the wonderful thing, he says, is how you turned, verse 9, he says, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they turned to the living and true God and they abandoned these idols that they were bowing down to, if you would. And that word turned that Paul uses there in the Greek, it's interesting. It literally means to revert back to what is right. How interesting is that? You turned to God from the idols, and literally the term Paul selects there is you turn back to the right thing from what was wrong. Even if they didn't even realize they were created in God's image and likeness, God owes or they their, owe oh God their worship as their creator, and they blindly didn't even realize it. But when they turned in repentance to the true and living God, and that's what Paul says, you turn to serve the living and the true God. That same term is used by Paul in Acts 14, where he says, We've come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things to serve the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. So that word turn, it speaks of the term I mentioned a moment ago of repentance. That's the idea there. Repentance biblically is not feeling sad for what I've done wrong or feeling regretful about what I'm doing that I know is wrong. That's a part, a component, but repentance biblically describes making a 180 degree turn. It's a change of mind about something that leads to a change of direction and going an opposite way. It's recognizing this direction, north has been wrong, I need to turn around and go south instead. That's what what repentance is. It's a choice to make a change, to turn around and recognize that we're turning away from one thing, turning towards a better or a right thing. And notice the Thessalonians were able to make that change, why, because the power of God came to their lives. Now, to me, that's very wonderful to realize because so ought we to recognize that same thing is available for us as well. Paul says you turned from these idols and turned to God, to the true and living God, and they didn't do that in their own strength. They did it because of the power of God that's available through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that enabled them to make that change. Look, if we would be honest with ourselves If we want to leave behind wrong ways or make changes in our life, a lot of times we realize, if we're honest, sometimes we may look at making certain changes, whether it's turning from a sinful or a wrong behavior or an unhealthy or destructive habit, or just turning from something we've been giving way too much attention to, and sometimes we look at that and and we become so familiar with the rut of a routine that it just seems almost impossible to change to us sometimes as people, right? And so then we wrestle with that reality. We've worn such a deep rut of routine, we feel stuck. We feel trapped. And we're thinking, I want to change, I want to turn things around, but I just, it literally seems unthinkable to be set free from this, or to be delivered from this, or to stop doing this and to go a different direction, again, whether it's a habit or a wrong relationship we need to get out of, or a situation, but the good news is that God's words reminding us the power to repent or change or turn is a free gift of the resurrection. That the power of Jesus having raised from the dead is available, that is great encouragement to find victory. That's why Paul says at the end of the chapter about resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says there, thanks be to God who gives us the victory Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says that as his culmination of a whole long chapter about the resurrection power of Jesus, that God gives us the victory. Oh man, I can't get victory. I can't get victory. Now you're getting it, right? You can't get victory. But God can give victory by his power being supplied to us. Because many a times, even after we come to the Lord initially and turn to him, we struggle, do we not? We fail, we err off course. But the Lord wants us to know that he offers the present power to change, the power to repent, to turn away, to turn towards what right by the resurrection power of his son, the same power that allowed Jesus to overcome death and the grave. That same power is available to you and I as a helpful solution. Romans 6 says it this way, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. We can live a new way. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, we've died to the old ways, certainly we shall also be united in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We may struggle with sin, but God's word teaches through the resurrection power of Jesus, we don't have to be enslaved to anything anymore because there's liberating power, deliverance power, overcoming power through Jesus supplied to us. Ephesians 1, Paul said it this way, I pray that you will begin to understand the incredible greatness of his power for those of us who believe this is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. How wonderful that because of Jesus' powerful resurrection and that power offered to us, if you're a Christian this morning, that power living within you offers change. You can change. I can overcome. I can be victorious because the power of Jesus is available to us. And let me just say this morning also, that means there's a great opportunity if you're with us this morning and you're not saved yet. And you're not a Christian. Because I can tell you, like I was in that spot one point, perhaps you're resisting following Jesus or coming to the Lord because you're thinking to one degree, I could never live like they do. I just couldn't do that. Couldn't give up this or couldn't change that. or And, and, and I remember doing that. My best friend got saved when I was in high school and I watched his life for a number of years. And part of what I would think is, I don't know if I could live like that. I don't know if I could give up this and live that way. And, and what I was basically concluding was, I don't know if I can change myself. And God's reminder to those who don't know Christ is God saying, I'm not expecting you to change yourself. <laughs> I don't need you to change yourself. What I need you to do is humbly realize your weak and sinful condition and just surrender your life to my son and my son will change you." You know, you don't clean a fish till after you catch it. God catches fish and then He cleans us, right? All of us who are Christians know that. How did you come to Jesus? Did you clean up your act? Nope, I came like a mess, man. And Jesus has been cleaning me up for a long period of time. And what a wonderful thing to know that, that opportunity to experience the mighty power of Christ can change you. Jesus said, whoever sins becomes a slave of sin, but if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. That's the difference. You got to come to Jesus and let Jesus set you free, and he'll gladly do that through the power of his resurrection. The second thing I think alluded to here that the resurrection of Christ offers to us is the privilege of relationship the privilege to have relationship. Paul mentions here how they turn to God from idols. And then he says the end of verse nine to serve, look what he calls him, the living and the true God. And I know that's in contrast to dead, worthless idols. Now you're serving the living and the true God, not a dead master like those idols from before, but a God who's alive, a God who's real, A God who's directly involved in a personal way. How refreshing that must have been for the Thessalonians after years of blindly serving these dead idols, these worthless fake deities, to now experience for the first time spiritually a living relationship with a real God, a loving God, a personal God who became intimately involved in their life. So crucial that we understand and never forget, folks, that biblical Christianity biblical Christianity does not teach duties of religion. Biblical Christianity offers daily relationship with a living God. That's what biblical Christianity is. This was the struggle, remember, that the religious leaders had in the day of Jesus because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, though well-intended in their religious zeal, they basically got very far off track spiritually because they became consumed with, as well as teaching others, that what God really wanted was keeping traditions and following certain rituals and maintaining certain religious routines and abstaining from this and doing works to make oneself holy. And many people, they themselves blindly in their own religious zeal, began to think that that was what God desired. And so people got very disheartened and they found themselves, the common people, becoming disinterested in God because they thought, man, this is a bunch of just meaningless rituals and rules and routines. And I can't even keep half of all those religious rules and routines. Look, that's why Jesus, remember when he came, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. What were they burdened with? religiosity. And he said, come to me. You can leave the religious routine. Come to me. I'm gentle and lowly. I'll I'll give you a yoke that's easy and a burden that's light. Because when Jesus came, he started promoting something completely different when he came as God in the flesh, revealing the heart of God. Jesus' favorite phrases, think with me, I jotted a few down. Jesus said things like, follow me. Believe in me, love me, obey me, come to me. You notice there's a real personal emphasis there. (laughs) Me. Jesus kept emphasizing the personal aspect of relationship. And that is what the heart of God is. I love how the Bible calls Abraham the friend of God. What a beautiful thing. The friend of God. That's what God desires. Jesus even said, I no longer call you servants. I'm not looking for some slaves. I call you friends. And if we think about just what friendship is, you know, friendship is spending time together, knowing one another, talking and listening, doing things together, it's relational. And one thing that's necessary for any relationship, friendship or otherwise is present life, right? The sad, grievous, difficult thing that happens in death is the experience of relationship with a person once enjoyed that goes away. And here's the wonderful thing. Our Lord, our spiritual leader, unlike any other spiritual leader in human history, he died, but he rose again the third day. And he's alive. And because he's alive, he offers to all of us this wonderful thing called relationship. The privilege of having a relationship with God through him. Unlike all other spiritual and religious leaders who are dead and buried and gone, Jesus, the only true God, left an empty tomb there in Jerusalem, and he's alive today. And because he's alive today, it offers us the privilege of walking with knowing and serving a living God. I don't know about you, the duties of religious living, that does not appeal to me. I was never a very good rule follower anyway. It doesn't appeal to me. But the reality of a daily relationship, that attracts me interaction with a human being. And how how wonderful to know that through our Lord, who's presently alive, there's the privilege of relationship that Jesus sees everything that you're dealing with. And he's walking with you through that as a good shepherd. He knows your struggles. He understands your hardships. He sees what you're wrestling with, even in your heart and mind this morning, because he's alive and he's living it out with you. He's living it within you. Always present, always available. He's there to help and to comfort, and to listen, and with the power to assist us, to speak to us, and to guide us. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest things we often fail to remember or just forget about at times as Christians that is available in the privilege of relationship with a living and risen Lord is, listen folks, it is one of the greatest antidotes for human loneliness. And we all struggle with that to different degrees at times. But what did Jesus say to us? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The person of the risen Lord himself promises his presence to always be with us. And the more that we can recognize that and yield to that, that though we may feel very lonely from a human perspective, Jesus, like a helpful, healing, comforting salve, can help with that struggle of loneliness. As we become conscious of his presence and aware of what he's offering to us relationally as we press into that and receive from him what he's offering to us, Paul says you've turned from that to now serve the living and the true God. And I like that he says serve there because if we're going to claim to be a follower of Christ and be saved by Jesus— and we don't serve him, something's missing there. We should be serving him. And I think on a day like today, as we celebrate a holiday, you know, Christmas and Easter, I think it's good to remind ourselves, we're not just remembering Jesus's resurrection one time a year. We should recognize every day of the year this blessed reality that Jesus is alive, and he's available, and he's with me, and he's with us, The question is, is are we living in relationship with him in that way? The wonderful thing is through relationship with Jesus, he supplies the power that we need to serve God. He doesn't just say live this way and then let us struggle. Jesus commands us how to live to serve God, but then he supplies from within us all the power to live that way. And he gives us the power to walk out the Christian life and serve God properly. Paul declared this in Galatians 2.21. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. And listen to what he says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I like that. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. Paul said, I've come to realize here's the key to life. Not trying to live out my own life. But yielding to and letting Jesus live out his life through me. And you know, I've often said from this pulpit before, I wonder sometimes in my life, in your life, if Jesus isn't almost a little bit frustrated saying, Look, this is not gonna work, two Christians in the same body. I need you to die. Stop trying to be a Christian so hard. I'm Christ. That trumps Christian. <laughs> I'm within you. <laughs> Learn to yield to me. I have a book, Christ in Dwelling and Enthroned. The title says everything. I read it periodically. Christ indwelling That's a fact. The second part is the struggle. Enthroned. Christ is indwelling all of us who are true Christians, but is he enthroned? Do we truly every day let Christ live through us? Jesus, what do you want me to see right now? What are you seeing right now? Jesus, where do you want me to go? Jesus, what would you like me to say in this situation? And, and letting truly the life of Christ within us be something we become conscious of and sensitive to and living out that. And I tell you, this idea that I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, is also, I'm telling you as well, a wonderful solution to the struggle with even suicidal tendencies. Because sometimes people will say, and I understand, I, don't, I can't find any reason to live. I don't want to live. I don't see a reason to live. I don't feel... Okay, maybe there is no reason for you to live. For you to live for yourself. But you can live for Christ. You can let Christ live in you and through you. That's a whole other different reason and incentive to live. Sometimes the truth of the matter is our life can be in a condition where maybe it doesn't feel like there is any reason to live. But Christ is the answer to a higher reason. We let him live through us and we just live for him instead of living for ourselves or for anyone else. And it gives us a hopeful reason to carry on and to go forward this wonderful privilege of relationship through the living Christ. And thirdly and finally, Paul speaks to us in verse 10 of another resurrection benefit, and that's very simply the promise of heaven. The promise of heaven. He says, we are now waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. There's our, our, our foundation. Even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come, so referring to the state of these new believers, Paul says they were waiting, and he mentions really a dual blessing here that they were waiting for as the result of Christ's resurrection and the power that is brought into their lives. They were both expecting heaven and believing they were going to escape wrath. Notice, first of all, they were now living in expectation of heaven. Referring to Jesus, he says, verse ten. Look at it. They were waiting for him. To come from where? Heaven. Waiting for Jesus to come from heaven. The Bible says the moment that we all accept Jesus Christ, we become citizens of heaven, right? Our citizenship is now in heaven. And heaven is that eternal abode of God and all of his followers, it's the eternal dwelling place of God. Pure holiness. Absolute bliss and paradise, peace and joy everlasting. Revelation 20 and 21, we'll see it. We're studying Revelation on Sundays. Describe it as a place of amazing beauty and brilliant light. And also a time, it says, when God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be, imagine this, no more death. Never losing a loved one again. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more crying. The former things, he says, have passed away. That's heaven, where God is, where God is waiting and coming for us. And as a believer right now, we, like these Thessalonians, are living in expectation of heaven. We are waiting for his son, Jesus, to come from heaven to bring us home, to give us our eternal reward as his believer and follower. We're on foreign soil right now, folks, and that's why it feels so foreign being here every single day. The longer I live, the more I feel like I don't belong on this planet because my citizenship is in heaven. The wonderful thing is we're not stuck here forever. We're on temporary assignment on foreign soil to live well, to finish well, to finish our course. But John 14, when Jesus was about to return back to heaven after having been on earth, he declared this, In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus said, Where I'm going, many dwelling places, the term is, in the glory of heaven. And he says, I'm preparing the reserved place for you as my follower. And if I go there and prepare, he says, I'm gonna come back for you. We're engaged now. But Jesus says, I'm following through with the marriage. I'm gonna come back and pick you up as my bride. And one day I'm gonna bring you home. And look, folks, whether it is via his return to this earth and his rapture of the church, and removing us all out of here instantaneously, or if it is one by one as we live on, the personal release from this earthly life through physical death that comes at different times and seasons to all of our lives, the good news is the outcome and the assurance is still the same. We're going to be brought to heaven. The Bible tells us that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Oh, I mean, that does just sound, to be present with the Lord, and all that that brings, that means the experience of everlasting enjoyment. You know, I just read this morning in my devotional time from Psalm 16, where it says at the end of the Psalm, in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore oh, man, I just never feel like I can find joy on this earth. The Bible says in his presence, fullness of joy, complete joy, and pleasures forever. All the benefit, the new glorified body that we received, right? We're going to get an eternal body. No more pain and sickness and struggles and health issues and complications. We're going to be reunited, with those we know and loved, that were our fellow brothers and sisters, our family, our comrades, and we're going to be together again forever. How wonderful, this wonderful reality. We're going to be with our Lord in his presence forever. This is the blessed hope that we have. We are waiting with expectation for heaven, but Paul says don't miss the reality. It also means that Jesus is going to deliver us from the wrath to come. That's what Jesus does. He's going to also not only bring us home to heaven, but he's delivering us from the wrath to come. Now, though that wrath can refer in a just sense to being banished to hell and eternal torment in hell, it foremost describes being delivered from the wrath that's coming in the time of the tribulation. That time period that the Bible says is coming where really the wrath of God will be poured out upon this Christ-rejecting world. And look, here's the thing. That wrath comes in the tribulation, and then that wrath culminates then in eternal damnation in hell forever afterwards. The wonderful thing is God is reminding us here that that is not our outcome as Christians, that God has something different for us, escape from that. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 2 say, because of human sin, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. See, God's wrath will begin during the tribulation period. Revelation 6 through 19, when we get there on Sunday mornings, describes the tribulation period and all the painful suffering and the wrath of God being poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. For those who rejected Jesus Christ, great cataclysmic judgments and intense human suffering, 100-pound hailstones falling from the sky. One-third of the waters of the earth being polluted and undrinkable. Great plagues and famine and painful disease boils upon mankind so painful that they're begging to die. And they can't be released from their bodies. And that's just a highlight of chapter 6 to 19. The wrath that's going to come upon this Christ-rejecting world And here's the glorious things, folks. Nowhere in chapter 6 through 19 do I see any reference to the church. And I tell you the reason why is because the Bible says right here, it's Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus will remove us. His church will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air before the wrath of God is being poured out here upon this earth against those who have rejected him. For those of us who've accepted Jesus Christ, We believe he fully bore the wrath of God for us on the cross. See, the wrath of God is against the sin of humanity. When Jesus died on the cross, he was suffering the wrath of God against the sin of humanity. I believe what Jesus did was sufficient. I believe he absorbed all the wrath of God in my place. And so, therefore, believing that and what Christ did was sufficient, I now get the privilege, you now get the wonderful opportunity to escape the coming wrath of God, to be delivered from the coming wrath of God. And folks, judicially, each and every one of us as human beings, because we're all sinful, we all deserve wrath. Romans 3 says we all sin and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of our sin is death. Every one of us deserves to bear the wrath of God. We, we never should forget that reality. Our sinfulness makes us guilty before a holy and a righteous God. But Romans five says that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so the righteous act of one man, our Lord Jesus Christ, eliminated the need to have to suffer that, that through him, there's an escape plan. There's an opportunity to be delivered. First Thessalonians five declares the promise this way. God has not appointed us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God's appointed the believer to, not to suffer wrath, but to obtain salvation, deliverance through Jesus. But let me just say candidly, that also means for the unbeliever, the one who's resisting Christ or who has rejected Christ, they don't have that same assurance. As they stay in that Christ-rejecting condition in their heart, John 3 says it this way, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see this life, but the wrath of God remains upon him, and that's a reality. The wonderful thing is to know that we have the privilege through trusting in Christ to escape, but to know that God's wrath is going to come. One commentator said it this way, the wrath of God is a necessary consequence of his justice. As a holy God, he cannot overlook moral evil, but must punish those who are guilty of it. In what sense is Jesus a savior at all if rebellious men and women continue to live that way and never receive a due reward for their wrong deeds? What is there to be saved from if coming punishment and hell does not exist? The reality is it is coming. The wonderful thing is to know the good news is God fired down all of his wrath on Jesus 2,000 years ago when he suffered on the cross, absorbed the wrath of God, dying in my place and your place, defeating the power of sin, death, and hell, raising again the third day so that now as a living, risen Savior, he can offer us the free gift to be waiting for him to come pick us up and bring us to heaven and deliver us from the wrath to come. How wonderful to live in that assurance that though as Christians, we may go through troubles on this earth. Life can be hard. And we may go through troubles on this earth, but thanks be to God, we're not waiting to endure a time period of almighty God's wrath being poured out upon us. Let us never forget, we are not just saved for heaven, we're also saved from wrath. That's a wonderful thing. And as a Christian, that should cause our hearts to wanna rejoice and worship and celebrate what Jesus has done, not only in his death, but in his powerful, mighty resurrection, that he's delivered us from that. And if you are here this morning, let me say, if you have not yet received Jesus Christ and you are not saved and you are still in your sin and under the wrath of God, it doesn't have to be that way. But you gotta reconcile that. You gotta call on the name of the Lord to be saved And everything changes then at that moment. This is a great incentive to consider receiving Christ. Shall we stand together and pray?